Hello, everybody, and welcome to your Ruby Live event. My name is Eric Weinkoop, and I'm the Director of Culinary Instruction here at Ruby. And I'm also uh, one of the members of the instructional team. Uh, we've got uh, half a dozen or so of us uh, that uh, look at all of your work. And uh, so you'll see some of my comments uh, and feedback along the way as well. I want to welcome you specifically to my office hours today. Uh, this is your chance uh, to ask a question about food and cooking and uh, my opportunity to do my best to provide a response uh, you know, based upon my experience, of course, and um, we'll go from there. Let's go ahead and jump into today's program. And uh, the first question uh, is from Carrie, who says, uh, hi, uh, I love the taste and cheesiness of nutritional yeast but it gives me a uh, terrible gas. I've tried uh, OTC over-the-counter remedies and have tried introducing it to my system in small doses, but nothing has worked. Do you have ideas uh, to help or any substitute? Uh, I'm bummed. So uh, Carrie, um, you know, I don't have uh, specific uh, suggestions for you know, your GI tract in, in this case, um, you know, if a particular ingredient uh, isn't working for you after, you know, some time and some trial and error, it, it may be uh, your body telling you to back off. And uh, this could be a time just to jettison the nutritional yeast and, um, you know, go on to other umami rich additives. And uh, I should, maybe I should say ingredients. And, uh, you know, one of my favorites is miso paste. And miso paste comes in a number of different styles. And each of these styles you, uh, are often recognized by a, a color uh, difference, but uh, they will vary in flavor and, and saltiness or sweetness. And I recommend that you try a couple, uh, at least at a time, so you can compare and uh, see how you like that as uh, a solution. Miso paste has um, uh, many different applications. It can be used in, in sauces. It can be used, um, uh, you know, as a, uh, a uh, sort of a, a secret ingredient, so to speak, in uh, soups and stews. And, uh, you know, just think about other ways that you might uh, add a little touch of flavor um, along with the umami taste that uh, miso is rich in, okay? Uh, amino acids, um, uh are also commonly used, kind of a, 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 a soy sauce-like product in terms of flavor, uh, adding saltiness and other flavor, accompanying flavor. Uh, so this is also a, a popular item to use for umami. And uh, there are other things, but those are a couple of solid places to start. And uh, so I hope you'll give that a try in terms of substitution ideas. Uh, but again, um, for all of us out there, uh, it is really a good idea to just listen to our bodies. And um, certainly there is a, uh, an adjustment period, you know, when we make uh, a, a significant change in a diet, you know, such as introducing a lot of uh, fiber if we're moving um, onto a, uh, a plant-heavy diet. Uh, our body requires some time to kind of get used to that. But if a single ingredient persists uh, in its trouble, uh, that it uh, provides us, then it's probably a good time to just uh, steer clear of that item. Thank you. All right. And uh, the next question, this is from uh, Patricia Juliana. 
who says, hello, Eric. Um, I have no cooking experience at all, and I live in Mexico. All right. Uh, perhaps it's Patricia Juliana. Um, welcome from Mexico, uh, one of my favorite places on the earth. Um, and to continue, uh, one of the dilemmas I am facing is the replacement of some ingredients in the recipes because some of them are difficult to obtain in Mexico uh, or the sizes of the products are very different. Uh -huh. So uh, this falls into this uh, common uh, category of questions that we get around ingredient substitutions. And, um, you know, there are a lot of variables to consider. And, you know, the, the first question that I ask is, ask myself, ask, ask you, is, you to think about is, you know, what is the function of the original ingredient in the recipe? And once we figure out what the function is, you know, how it, how it um, acts uh, in the recipe, then we can think about ingredients that might be a suitable substitute, keeping in mind that uh, sometimes an ingredient will uh, be replaced or, or can be replaced by a single ingredient. Um, but other times, multiple ingredients may be needed to replace a single ingredient in the original recipe. Again, just depending on the function or functions of the original ingredient, okay? Uh, and then the second thing I want to mention is uh, please keep in mind as we make alterations to uh, recipes, whatever the change is, um, you know, whether it is an ingredient itself uh, or a cooking temperature or a cooking time uh, or a cooking method, that we should expect changes to the finished product. Okay, that's going to be a reasonable expectation. All right. Uh, now, uh, back to uh, the heart of the question here. Uh, I'm going to suggest that you uh, reach out to us if you have specific questions about our preparation. Uh, reach out to us at uh, support at ruby.com. And that'll give us a chance to address your question one-on-one -on -one because there are often, you know, uh, different nuances that are unique to your setting that should be addressed. Uh, and that's going to be the best way to find, you know, some common ground that will allow you to uh, make what you want to make uh, or allow you to make what you need to make while still fulfilling the requirements of an assignment that you might be submitting for us to critique. Okay. And uh, so when you do write in, um, you know, please include a, a brief synopsis of the original uh, situation and um, what the issue is um, and, you know, what you're, if it's, for example, if it's an allergy or, or, you know, something that's significant in that respect, then, you know, let us know what those boundaries are so that we can understand, uh, you know, how far the playground extends, you know, as we try to choose uh, or brainstorm with you appropriate substitutions. Okay. Um, so I look forward to a message from you at support at ruby.com. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and then the next question, this is from Carleen, who writes, uh, what is the best way to rinse small grains like amaranth and teff? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, my uh, favorite way uh, to rinse these very, very small uh, grains, you know, these, for those of you that have not used amaranth or teff, 
you know, these grains are smaller than a pinhead. And so they can very easily pass through uh, many strainers uh, that we might have in the kitchen. And we certainly don't want to be using a colander uh, that has even larger holes. Um, but, you know, my favorite way to rinse these small grains is to use cheesecloth. And if you uh, take a colander uh, or some, you know, reasonable size strainer uh, and line it with cheesecloth, and I would recommend at least, uh, you know, folding it in half uh, for, for two layers, uh, then you're going to capture what you need to, and maybe even more than that. Now give it a try and, and see if, uh, if two or maybe even three layers uh, is going to be the best answer. But uh, nonetheless, cheesecloth uh, is the way that I like to handle that. And then you can do your rinsing. Uh, you can you can pull the cheesecloth out of the colander or strainer, and then you can you know sh shake the water out or let it sit off to the side as you need to. Uh, before opening it up into a, a bowl or a pan. And uh, you'll need to gently sort of shake or pat uh, the backside of the cheesecloth or, uh, or even rub the inside in order to loosen up uh, some of those small grains that might uh, adhere uh, to the texture of the cheesecloth, okay? Uh, if you're working with a relatively small quantity of these small grains, then consider even a coffee filter. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, you know, use, um, uh, if you've got some sort of a, a harder plastic, um, or, or whatever the material is, but a harder container to hold that coffee filter, uh, that is convenient as well. Uh, then you can just put your grains inside, run some water over it as you need to, uh, let that run through and then pull, uh, the filter out with the grains and then transfer that to your cooking vessel. Okay, so those are a couple of suggestions, and I would imagine that something in there uh, will fit your situation. Thank you. And uh, let's see, next up, uh, we've got a tilapia question from John, and or it could be a Berblanc question. All right, uh, John says, I recently attempted to cook tilapia with a pink peppercorn Berblanc sauce. Aha, so that sounds like uh, one of the Ruby recipes. Uh, the result was quite underwhelming. Uh, I suspect my challenge had to do with forming the emulsion. The sauce never took on a dark tan opaque quality. Any technique hints? Okay. Um, so let's, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the, the Burblanc. Uh, and the emulsion that is, uh, the backbone, right? The, um, uh, the, really the technique at the base of that particular sauce. And, uh, you know, first of all, you know, as you put your liquids into the pan, whether, whatever it is, you know, uh, wine of some sort is, is typical. Uh, it could be another type of wine, uh, sometimes a fortified wine like vermouth uh, may be used. Uh, sometimes the addition of vinegar is used. And you're getting flavor as well as acidity, okay, uh, at, at this point. And that's going to be reduced with some sort of an aromatic. Um, in the classical uh, Euro-American kitchen, shallots uh, have tended to be uh, the preferred uh, aromatic at this stage of a Berblanc. And, uh, or a, a butter sauce, right, as um, it's sometimes called in, uh, in American English anyway. And um, so at, at this point, um, the, 
the contents of the pan should be reduced. The, the liquid needs to be reduced um, considerably. Now, it depends on the overall quantity that we're starting with and, and the quantity that we're, uh, we're going to um, produce in terms of, of the finished sauce. But, uh, you know, I think for some of these smaller recipes, uh, in our library that would probably, you know, serve, uh, say, four or so people. Um, you know, we're talking about a quarter cup or so of wine, maybe a, a little additional uh, vinegar. And so the quantity is pretty small. Uh, we're going to reduce that to something, um, you know, in, in the realm of uh, a couple of teaspoons of liquid in the pan, okay? Now, some of this is going to depend upon the size of the pan uh, that you use, all right? Um, and um, you, you want some moisture in the pan, but you, we want to intensify the flavor uh, at that point uh, in this initial stage. And then keeping the contents warm, uh, so moderate, moderate, moderately low heat is, is often going to be fine. Uh, we're going to add cold butter and it's usually going to come in the form of chunks that we have prepared. Okay. Uh, they could be smaller, uh, pieces as well, but oftentimes they're about the size of that first joint of your thumb. And, um, now you've got, uh, the choice of adding these pieces one by one, uh, or adding it all at once, okay? And you might try it either way to see uh, what might work better for you, depending on the size of the pan, depending on the heat intensity under the pan. Uh, but ultimately, there's a balance that we're trying to strike between the heat of the, the pan and the contents, uh, along with the chilled butter itself, okay? And we using a whisk, um, stir that butter around in the pan. Um, and, and don't do it gently. You put a little bit of, uh, uh, of energy into it uh, so that um, as it melts, we try to um, sort of keep it uh, in contact with the cold butter that's still swirling around. And that's going to help maintain uh, the, the, the temperature balance, uh, the speed at which the butter melts, and the emulsion that we want to maintain, right? I mean, otherwise... Um, if the pan is too hot uh, or the butter quantity is too small and ultimately the butter melts too quickly, then it will simply break. And, um, you know, we, we don't have an emulsion. So breaking means the separation of the fat uh, co uh, component and the water component. And um, uh, so you'll get some streaking, uh, uh, visual streaking through the sauce as the uh, as the broken butter is being swirled about. So um, it, it takes some practice. Um, you know these sort of butter sauces. Uh, you know in a an on ground culinary school setting, uh, students are are working this several times um, in order to uh, practice um, the the balance that's going to be required okay keep in mind also that um, if you're working with a uh, a hot pan um, you might be able to simply turn the fire off under the pan and the contents of the pan uh, and the pan uh, itself you know the amount of heat that it's carrying uh, may be adequate to melt the butter and maintain that emulsion. And so try that approach as well and uh, see if you can you know, strike a balance in terms of um, the emulsion. Now, when it comes to the, the 
the palate interest of a butter sauce. Uh, they are heavy because they are predominantly fat. Uh, butter is approximately 80% uh, fat uh, with the remainder of that mostly uh, water and a small percentage uh, milk solids. And then uh, you've got vinegar, which is mostly water, and you got the wine, which is mostly water. We've reduced those right in that first phase um, so that we're trying to intensify the flavor. And so the idea is that the, your finished product um, should have uh, the elements of wine in terms of flavor, as well as acidity uh, that will balance the heaviness or the fattiness of the butter. And uh, so if you're not getting that, then you consider adjusting at the end, uh, pr primarily the, uh, the, the acidity. And this is where, you know, some recipes might call for the uh, addition of uh, some more vinegar or a squeeze of lemon juice, okay? And also salt uh, will play a role in the final seasoning. So uh, generally speaking in cooking, when it comes to final seasoning of anything, we usually talk about salt and acidity. And acidity can come from different sources, whether it's vinegar or uh, a citrus fruit like lime or lemon or something else. Um, there's tamarind and kokum and, and other souring uh, agents. Uh, but keep in mind that salt and acidity will be your friend, uh, friends, I should say, uh, when it comes to the final balancing of a dish. Okay. Um, so, so, John, I hope you'll give that a try uh, in order to find a balance in the interest on the palate as well as trying to maintain the emulsion. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up, uh, let's see. Hello, Chef Eric. Uh, hello, Eduardo. Uh, Eduardo says, I tried a vanilla cake that had the texture of a chocolate cake. I've been trying to make one similar, but it ends up real, uh, a really good flavor, but not as moist as the chocolate one. Uh, any tips on how I can make it better? Uh, well, this is, uh, this is an interesting question in that it is um, uh, pretty generalized. Um, you know, when it comes to baking, we are uh, working with a formula. And, uh, you know, the formula uh, is typically sees uh, particular uh, ratios between ingredients and, and the way that they function and react to each other. And, um, you know, what I'm going to suggest here, there's just too many moving parts uh, with, with a, a question of this nature. What I would suggest, Eduardo, is, um, you know, if you have a place to start, uh, you know, in terms of a recipe or a couple of recipes, um, then, you know, we can look at uh, those side by side and start to uh, kind of tease apart the, f the function of different uh, ingredients uh, and, uh, you know, see how you can adjust one to make it look like the other, okay? Now, in terms of moisture in a cake, um, generally it's going to be oil content, okay? And so if you wanted to start tinkering yourself, uh, you know, with the, the recipe uh, or the formula, then you might increase, you know, the oil content, um, which is a common source of moisture for many cakes. But again, it just depends on the cake and what's, what else is going on inside uh, of that recipe or formula. So um, again, 
play with it uh, by adding oil. Uh, and when you get to a point when you want to reach out to us, uh, we're at support at ruby.com. The more information you can include, the better. Thank you. All right. And we've got a next question coming up here. And uh, the question is, what is the best sugar that can be added to a recipe if needed? Uh, would it be maple syrup, uh, apple sauce, uh, or perhaps, perhaps something else? Okay. Um, you know, sugar is uh, ultimately... Um, well, on, on one hand, going to depend on what you're making. If you're if you're baking something, um, sugar has the or, or sweeteners, but I'll say sugar in particular um, to start with uh, has the function of not only uh, adding the the sweet taste right that we're talking about here, but it also adds uh, moisture. Uh, uh, to a, a baked product, like a cookie, for example. And uh, so it, it changes structural elements uh, of certain foods. But if we're talking about um, uh, the, the savory side of the kitchen or more general cooking, then you know what you use as a sweetener ultimately is going to be up to you, okay? Uh, and, you know, your, your preference um, based upon, uh, you know, uh, health, reasons or ethical reasons or environmental reasons or something else. Um, and, uh, you know, so think about whether it's going to be uh, from another, um, uh, another granular source, you know, it, it, uh, or, or maybe another type of sugar. Um, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, maple sugar, I, I mean, it's a great ingredient. I love maple uh, uh, syrup. Uh, it's also available in a, in a dry granular maple sugar form uh, that you might consider. Um, you know, applesauce uh, is, is wonderful. Applesauce is usually a little bit lower in sugar than maple sugar, right? Or jaggery or piloncillo or, or other forms of cane sugar uh, or, or maple sugar, for example. Um, but apple, applesauce can provide great moisture uh, to an item. Uh, along with the fiber, right, which is, of course, beneficial for our health. Uh, so, the, you know, your suggestions are fantastic. Uh, I th would recommend that you try these different ideas, these different products uh, in whatever it is that you're making to see what you like best, okay, to see that the sugar level, uh, the color that it imparts, the additional flavor in addition to the taste uh, that it imparts, uh, as well as how it might uh, change the texture, especially in the case of baked goods. Okay, um, uh, so experiment. Uh, I always recommend that cooks have a, a notepad and um, uh, a pen or pencil uh, in the kitchen to take notes along the way, so that as you make changes uh, the next time around, right, uh, you can uh, start from there and uh, have fun with the process. Uh, you know, cooking ultimately uh, is going to be uh, based uh, in large part on your experimentation uh, and, you know, your trial and error, so to speak. You know, you're tinkering with recipes and learning as you go. Okay, that's, that's a huge, huge part of the learning curve in the kitchen. Um, a, a small percentage of it, in my opinion, is going to come from uh, the textbook, right, um, or other outside resources. And uh, so I encourage you uh, to, uh, to have some fun with it. 
Thank you. Uh, so Tina's response is yes for baking. I wanted to use the, the healthiest. Yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, you know, as I just mentioned, um, uh, uh, applesauce works really well, uh, as well as other uh, fruit purees. It could be date or fig or apricot or something else. Uh, you have a choice between using fresh fruit purees uh, or uh, a more uh, flavor and sugar intense dry fruit uh, purees. Um, and so try them both ways. Um, I would, um, uh, you know, the, uh, in the case of applesauce or other uh, fresh fruit purees, they add a lot of moisture, uh, which, you know, can be a good thing or it can really disrupt uh, a finished product. So there's going to be some trial and error there if you want to simply start um, by um, omitting a granular sugar and substituting it with a very wet applesauce or uh, I you know would suggest that you might even take a look for recipes that from the beginning have already been tested and call for applesauce uh, as ingredients okay because ultimately the recipe or the formula that you're starting with will need to be tested and rewritten uh, to accommodate this very different ingredient that you're talking about okay but uh, you have the potential of using any kind of a sweetener that you choose okay you'll just need to um, readjust uh, the recipe accordingly thank you all right and uh, next up uh, can you please explain the different sections of the refrigerator what they're for and where we should store different types of food uh, I have open shelves, two bins, and a pull-out drawer. Okay, so, um, you know, I'll, I'll take this, uh, uh, I think, with a couple of different uh, uh, approaches. And, and the first one is uh, the, the drawers. Um, uh, well, let me actually, let me, let me back up and start with something even more basic, and that is the refrigerator as a big box, okay, uh, fundamentally extracts moisture uh, from the environment. And so this is why, you know, we will see um, uh, high moisture items like a bell pepper, for example, uh, will start to develop wrinkles on its skin after just a day uh, in the refrigerator. And, and this is because the refrigerator is extracting the moisture and dehydrating uh, the foods, okay? And so the, the drawers uh, can be used to add some protection uh, to the foods and, and to uh, control the humidity, all right? And, um, you know, when it comes to items that have thin skin, and, uh, you know, I think about celery, um, you, know, uh, you know, English cucumbers come to mind, you know, these... Uh, can benefit from a drawer with a high humidity setting. And sometimes there's a drawer that's dedicated uh, to high humidity, which means it's, uh, it's sealed um, or has very little ventilation. Sometimes there's gonna be some sort of an adjustment um, flap um, that will open and close uh, uh, ventilation holes. And if you close those up, it becomes a high humidity setting and um, you can slow down the dehydration uh, of some of these items. And, and you know, bell peppers could be a part of that um, uh, as well. Um, now there are you know, other things uh, uh, that can go in a, in a low humidity setting. Um, 
uh, you know, if you were to, um, uh, you know, open open the uh, the uh, the ventilation uh, holes or flap, uh, maybe it's peaches, maybe it's apricots, um, uh, you know, things that are allowed to breathe a little bit more. Some trial and error, of course, is going to be uh, necessary for this. Another thing to consider is, um, you know, many fruits, you know, like apples and and, and uh, peaches and, and apricots and melons, uh, bananas, um, emit a, a gas called ethylene, and uh, ethylene um, uh, is a is a hormone that uh, hastens ripening. And you know, I think the first thing to, to mention here is uh, uh, to avoid the placement of uh, these high ethylene emitting uh, items, usually you know, fruits, um, is examples of which I just mentioned, uh, next to items that are um, sensitive uh, to ethylene. And generally speaking, uh, food items that are sensitive to ethylene are, are green colored uh, vegetables. And so any of those, so chlorophyll, you know, is, is, is going to be uh, a part of that story. But any of your leafy greens, uh, your herbs uh, are, are going to be more sensitive. Uh, and what happens is that um, their, their, their ripening or maturation is hastened and uh, they can rot faster. Okay, so it shortens their shelf life if they're placed in uh, close proximity with these um, high ethylene emitters. Okay. Now, uh, at least in my kitchen, you know, the typical high ethylene emitting fruits, um, avocados and bananas and apples uh, and melons, for example, are, are kept outside of the refrigerator typically, um, which is a good thing. So they can just air out and, and not disrupt things around them. But, but do keep that in mind if you happen to store these things in the refrigerator. Okay. Um, now, you know, another thing to, uh, to consider is um, how we might wrap uh, or uh, further protect the items that go into the refrigerator. And, uh, you know, when it comes to um, uh, herbs, you know, a, a head of, a, a bunch of celery comes to mind, you know, even bell peppers that will dry out pretty quickly. You know, I like to protect these things with a kitchen towel. And, um, you know, I usually use a damp towel, okay, uh, in order to, number one, uh, 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 protect the product from uh, the moisture that's being drawn out by the refrigerator box, right, itself. And then at the same time to uh, introduce a little bit of moisture up close to that product, okay? Now you can use paper or cloth towels. Cloth towels will typically hold moisture for longer. Um, so do consider that. Um, I find that, uh, you know, in particular herbs um, that are more delicate um, can benefit from this sort of protection. When it comes to uh, the most uh, delicate herbs, uh, you know, cilantro comes to mind. And, uh, you know, one uh, way to store those is upright in a small amount of water, just like you would a, a bouquet of flowers. And so that's one thing to consider. Um, now, you know, other things to keep in mind here uh, are going to be purchasing, which is the step one, right, in this big story. Uh, think about how much you purchase uh, relative to the frequency of purchases, okay? Um, you know, certainly if we buy a lot of product at once and we shop uh, less frequently, then uh, 
the product is going to have more opportunity to lose quality in the refrigerator. Okay. And so if you're able to adjust your purchase purchasing cycle, uh, that uh, also fits into this question of, of how we use a refrigerator. Okay. Now, otherwise, uh, keep in mind uh, that in the refrigerator, your spaces farthest back away from the door are going to be the coldest. And so items that would benefit from uh, the coldest temperatures, um, you know, uh, should be stored toward the back of the refrigerator. Uh, items that um, uh, might be eaten quickest uh, or are, um, uh, you know, maybe a little bit uh, uh, more flexible in terms of, you know, their durability uh, can come out toward the front. Uh, items that are highly perishable, um, you know, should go toward the back where it's going to be coldest uh, in the refrigerator. Uh, the refrigerator door uh, is one of the warmer places in the refrigerator because each time you open the refrigerator door, uh, that space on the door itself is going to make uh, some contact with the ambient, warmer ambient air uh, outside the refrigerator. And so uh, the, the shelf life of perishable goods tends to be shorter. Uh, this is why uh, condiments, um, many of which are high in uh, vinegars and, and sugars and salts, which are natural preservatives, uh, do well in the, uh, the kitchen door. Okay. And so those are things to consider. I mean, otherwise, you know, organize the refrigerator so that uh, you can see things, that you can reach things uh, conveniently, and that you're apt to, uh, you know, use things effectively uh, in terms of their, their life cycle. Um, there is an approach uh, to uh, kitchen, uh, you know, food inventory uh, organization and usage called FIFO, F. I-F-O, and that's an acronym for first in, first out. Uh, because food is perishable, uh, it is typically best uh, to consume the products that we purchased first. So that, hence the first in uh, item is going to be the first out item. So keep, the, keep FIFO uh, in mind. In fact, my next dog is going to be named FIFO. All right, uh, on to the next question. Thank you. Uh, Jane says, is using a plastic shoebox a good option for storing greens? Uh, I thought the picture from the refrigerator reset project showed using a shoe tote. Uh, I like the idea, but wondered if there would be concerns for health, uh, BPA leaching. How do you store greens? Um, you know, some sort of a plastic box uh, is certainly a good way to uh, protect greens, as I just talked about. Um, it can be a shoe box. Uh, it can be a, a more food specific container uh, that you can you know, find uh, online at some of the uh, uh, restaurant.com sort of uh, vendors. And uh, many of these um, uh, are going to be uh, vendors that sell to uh, the commercial you know, restaurant trade where it's customary uh, to use plastic containers to store food uh, in the refrigerator. Uh, so, uh, yeah, consider, uh, you know, those sort of extra measures, uh, even within a plastic container, it, uh, is often good to, to wrap, uh, items, you know, in uh, paper towels or a, a damp cloth towel, uh, for, for extra protection in terms of BPA, just look at the product 
and uh, find some, something that's going to be satisfactory uh, for you, okay? Uh, and how do I store greens? You know, I uh, use the, the crisper drawers. Um, I uh, will use towels, as I've talked about, for added protection. Uh, and then I also just try to buy quantities that are small enough that I work through them uh, with minimal risk uh, of, um, you know, real noticeable degradation, okay? Uh, and so all of those measures, I think, need to come together uh, as we manage our food inventory that's, that's uh, highly perishable. Thank you. Uh, hello, Teresa. Uh, I don't have a specific question at this time, uh, but we'll appreciate hearing the responses to questions from others. Uh, however, I uh, would be very interested in hearing more about the topic listed, uh, RE, how to turn passion for cooking into Profit. Okay. Um, so yeah, this is a, a fun question, fun topic, and it's a broad one uh, as well. Uh, generally speaking, okay, I'm going to say, uh, you know, think about um, your hobbies, you know, uh, your, your other interests um, that can intersect with uh, cooking of some sort. And um, the idea of uh, monetizing that, you know, it, it could be food that you cook uh, to feed other people, such as um, a full meal in a, in a cafe or small restaurant setting. Uh, it could be a single product like a, a hot sauce that you bottle and you sell retail. Uh, or it could be something that you you don't uh, uh, cook and sell at all, but rather something, something like food photography. Uh, or it might be food styling for a photographer who does food photography. And uh, so there's some different, um, different approaches, but it, it will just depend upon your interest uh, in the food world and, um, uh, you know, how they intersect, I guess, you know, your interest in food. All right. Um, you know, when it, uh, comes to starting a business uh, of any sort. Um, I am a big fan of uh, working up, you know, producing, writing out a business plan uh, so that you um, are confronted uh, with many topics, questions, issues, and uh, possible conundrums um, that you can work through uh, on paper uh, before you're actually faced with those things uh, in a setting where uh, you risk losing lots of money very quickly, okay? And uh, one place uh, for these sorts of resources is uh, the, uh, the SCORE organization, uh, which is a subgroup of the uh, U.S. Small Business Administration. And their website is score.org, which you'll see on your screen, okay? And um, they've got resources um, and also people uh, available to help you uh, through some of these uh, business startup questions. Thank you. Okay. And let's see. So Sandra is uh, asking, sorry, did I miss something? Oh, no, uh, not at all. We're just getting started. Um, I thought we are not using oil in our recipes. Um, whole food plant-based SOS. So SOS is uh, salt, oil, sugar. Uh, as in no salt, oil, sugar in their added forms. Uh, would you have any suggestions to make a cake fluffy other than oil in regards to a question earlier on? Um, 
Let's see here. So I thought we're not using oil in our recipes. Uh, it, it depends on your approach. Okay. So, okay. So yeah, you know, in our, um, uh, uh, forks over knives course, there is certainly a suggestion, uh, that you consider, uh, what it would be like, you know, in, in your life, if you omitted added fat, um, and, you know, as well as sugar, oil, and salt. And uh, some people are choosing to take that uh, more aggressive approach to address health concerns. Um, others are just trying to, to uh, dip their toe in the, in the water, so to speak, to see if they can do it. Uh, because it's a big, big change uh, for many people. Uh, excuse me, just a moment. <clears throat> Uh, but but ultimately, uh, there are uh, different ways you can approach that, and it's going to be up to you. Okay, you can uh, choose to, you know, cut those ingredients in half and just use fifty percent of what you were doing, or uh, in the past, or what the recipes call for, um, or you know something in between. And um, you know, also, you know, I'll take a moment here and say, you know, sure, if if a person has uh, a health concern that they really want to address, uh, you know, hardcore, you know, that's one thing, um, you know, go for it. I, I encourage you to do that. And, um, you know, uh, but on the other hand, you know, when it comes to cooking and, and eating food, I, I hope that uh, generally we can, you know, we can do it in a way that's balanced uh, and, and find an approach that um, uh, is going to still maintain the joy of cooking, the joy of eating uh, in your daily life, uh, as well as uh, in the lives of those around you that you might be cooking for, okay? Um, and then when it comes to, you know, making a cake fluffy, um, you know, oil will certainly uh, add moisture to a cake, uh, but oil will also add density uh, to a cake because oil itself is very heavy. Now, when it comes to a lighter cake, and this is going to be true of batters in general, so it could be uh, pancakes uh, for breakfast as well, uh, consider increasing the leavening agent. And, uh, you know, very often we're using uh, baking powder, uh, you know, in the formula and uh, just try increasing that and uh, see what you come up with. Um, and, uh, you know, that would be a, a first uh, a, a, easiest, I think, place to start. Uh, you can also introduce air uh, through uh, meringue if you're using egg whites or aquafaba if you're using uh, just plant-based sources, okay? And aquafaba is bean water. And, uh, you know, uh, aquafaba uh, is very commonly taken from the can of canned beans, that liquid that's in there. Um, or you can use the liquid from beans that you cook at home, but generally speaking, the concentration is, is less. Uh, in other words, there's a higher water content uh, in the water, uh, the aquafaba at home, in which case you can reduce it uh, on the stovetop to concentrate all the starches and proteins and things in that water, uh, and then you can um, uh, mix it. You, know, you can whisk it. Uh, just as you would regular meringue. And then that can be folded into a batter uh, and then uh, you can move forth with your preparation. So those are a couple of ideas for you to try. Thank you. 
All right. So Sarah says, which stove do you prefer for cooking, electric or gas, and why? Uh, for me, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, um, uh, it's just a matter of getting used to what you have. Um, you know, at home right now, I've got gas. I, I have, you know, I may have an opportunity to cook with, with on uh, electric uh, coils once in a while. Um, in the past, when I was, um, you know, cooking in commercial kitchens, I cooked in both on, on both gas and, and, and uh, commercial electric ranges. And uh, you can cook equally well on either one. It's just a matter of getting used to using that particular equipment. Okay. Um, now, you know, th there are discussions these days uh, about the detrimental effects of uh, a gas range uh, to uh, the health of, of uh, people and animals in the environment. So, um, you know, if that interests you, you know, you might take that into consideration. Um, but otherwise, when it comes to cooking, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's all about the skill that you develop uh, to do what it is that you want to do. Thank you. All right. And next up, uh, hello, Mary Jo. Uh, when using a thermopen, okay, um, or for the, the greater audience, this is also called an instant uh, read thermometer. Uh, so when using a thermopen to check temperature, uh, for example, uh, when making jams, uh, etc., should the tip of the pen touch the base of the sauce pan, uh, just a note to say uh, the feature you've added to get the answer to a question, uh, uh, to a particular question directly is very useful. Excellent. Thank you for your feedback on that feature. And regarding the uh, InstaRead thermometer, uh, these convenient uh, pocket uh, thermometers, um, ideally, no, it, it would not make contact with the pan itself, in which case we're going to get the influence of uh, the pan temperature. Um, instead, um, give the contents uh, a, a stir uh, to evenly distribute the heat and then stick your thermometer in, uh, you know, ideally somewhere in the middle uh, of that mass of food uh, in order to get uh, your temperature. Okay. And, uh, you know, as you look at the, the stem of the thermometer, very often that last maybe centimeter or so has some sort of a little different uh, diameter, uh, looks a little bit different. Uh, and that's going to be where um, you, know, you want to have that whole thing submerged, ideally. If you're using an analog uh, InstaRead thermometer, as you look at the, uh, the stem, um, somewhere up toward the middle of the stem, uh, maybe a, th a third of the way up or so, you'll see a little divot, a very small little divot uh, in the stem. And you want to put it deep enough to, to submerge that divot as well, because this whole section of the stem uh, is going to be used uh, to um, take in the thermometer, uh, take in the, uh, the, the heat, and then register that on the dial up here. Okay. And uh, so submerging the stem uh, adequately, adequately is going to be important as well. Thank you. All right, next up. From Nancy. Do you have a formula of how to choose the diameter of a saute pan for the volume of food that you're cooking, uh, the, the no oil method uh, to prevent steaming? Okay, so 
When looking for new alloys and designs in saute pans, what should we be looking for? Brands? Okay, so we've got at least uh, what three different questions here. Let me uh, respond to the first one regarding pan size. And so the question is uh, geared directly toward the avoidance of steaming, okay, when sauteing. And uh, the no oil method is called out here, but uh, whether you're using oil or not, okay, this is going to be a, a concern. So the, the, the traditional classical saute method or the no oil method, okay, we get steaming a product when the pan is overheated. All right. And so regardless of the pan size, if too much product is added to the pan, then we run the risk of overheating. OK, so pan size uh, is irrelevant. Uh, instead, um, choose whatever pan size is going to be appropriate for you. OK, based upon your burner size, your, you know, your burner BTUs, you know, whatever is going to be best for you if you're cooking for one or cooking for four. Um, for example, you know, all those things should be considered. Um, and then, uh, you know, we want to heat the pan adequately, uh, and then add oil or don't add oil, depending on what path you're taking, and then add the appropriate amount of food to the pan to avoid steaming. The steaming results, um, because uh, when a lot of uh, relatively cool food is added to the hot pan, uh, the temperature of the pan drops. Uh, and, you know, rather than, um, you know, the maintaining that sizzling high heat uh, environment, um, we, we start to uh, promote steaming, okay, which is a lower temperature uh, sort of a, um, a, a process that's going to be uh, initiated. Okay, so uh, food quantity is going to be most important. All right. Um, and in that case, uh, if you have a lot of food to be cooked, you'll need to cook the food in batches. And so be prepared to have a, a bowl or some sort of a pan off to the side where you can uh, remove the contents from your cooking pan uh, to, to be held while you then move in the next batch of raw product to be cooked. OK. Uh, and uh, so. Um, uh, thank you, Patrick, for breaking these questions up. Um, the next uh, sub-question here, uh, now standalone question, is when looking for new alloys designs in saute pans, what should we be looking for? Uh, Nancy, let me tell you, I am not up to speed on new pan alloys and uh, designs. Um, you know, uh, namely uh, because I, uh, I just, I don't get too caught up on new alloys. Um, I think if we buy solid um, uh, cookware uh, that's got, you know, multiple layers of metal, you know, at least two layers, but very often it's going to have three or four that's sandwiched together. Uh, often it's going to be aluminum, stainless steel, aluminum, copper, aluminum, sort of a, a uh, of a layering in order to evenly distribute heat, um, then we're good. Uh, we're going to have cookware that can be used for the rest of our life. And, um, you know, we have uh, these new companies that will introduce, uh, uh, they'll rearrange the order of the copper or the aluminum, or maybe add another layer of copper to the one that's already in there. Uh, in order to get your attention, you know, every couple of years, in order to sell a new line of products. And 
Um, I'm not saying that those products are inferior, um, but I am saying that they're probably unnecessary, at least in most cases. Um, so in terms of, of um, uh, you know, brands, um, uh, you know, I would say that really depends on your budget, okay? Uh, because cookware, as we know, um, can span quite a, a range of prices. And, uh, you know, if possible, try uh, cooking on different branded products. Uh, you know, maybe friends or family already have some that you can try out. That would be the best thing to do. Okay. And then you can see uh, if you like it or not. And the other considerations are um, how heavy the cookware is. Um, some uh, expensive, uh, you know, robust cookware is also very heavy and, uh, on its own. And once we load it up with food, it becomes very heavy and uncomfortably so for a lot of cooks. And so I think it's important to think about that uh, as well, you know, as the construction of the, uh, the pan uh, itself. Okay. Um, you know, another thing is if you can get your hands on the pan, what I like to do is um, I'll grab the pan and grab the handle and I'll just see how, how solid uh, the handle and the attachment is to the pan. I, in other words, I don't want much movement at all. I don't want any flex in there. I want a, a nice solidly built pan. Um, I've come across pans that... Um, I have bent in the store. I have come across pans that I've, I've actually broken a piece off and I kind of look around and I put it back on the shelf and I walk away. Um, but look for good quality cookware, okay? Um, take a look at a place like Costco, um, which has a history of offering sets of stainless steel cookware um, that provide a really good value. And, uh, you know, their Kirkland brand is one example. They often uh, will offer others. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of that brand name, there are many, many good choices out there. Okay, so uh, take those things into consideration uh, and uh, try to test them out uh, if possible. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, moving on here. Uh, the next question, uh, what would be the benefit of having an air fryer. Uh, I noticed a number of FOK recipes use them. And is there a formula for using the oven instead? Example, time and temperature. Uh, an air fryer um, is a, uh, it, it's a, it's just a small, you know, stovetop, um, you know, uh, an, an emphasis on small uh, appliance, um, which allows you to do multiple things, um, you know, like, um, um, uh, roasting and like sauteing, um, you know, without uh, cranking up a bigger oven, uh, which could be less efficient. Um, so when it comes to especially smaller quantities, you know, some of these uh, smaller stove or, or I should say countertop appliances, whether it's a, an air fryer, um, you know, or a, a, a kind of a toaster oven, uh, you know, appliance. Uh, these things can be really uh, efficiently used. And, and once you learn to use them, uh, you can uh, produce some uh, beautiful meals um, out of uh, these small appliances. And so it's all about developing your skills uh, in cooking and your knowledge around food handling and practicing, you know, the use of these appliances. Um, 
So, uh, you know, in terms of a formula that translates to a, an oven, I don't have a particular formula. Um, uh, you might check online to see if anyone else does. Um, I would also sus suspect that if you do find, you know, some, someone's formula, that you're still going to have to do some practice uh, in your own kitchen based upon your own style of cooking to see how one appliance translates to the other. Okay. And again, this is where I recommend taking notes uh, and, um, you know, compiling your own customized cooking guide for you and your kitchen. That's what I do. And it works really well. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, another question from Nancy. I have spent a lifetime collecting interesting cookbooks for SAD, right? S-A-D, the Standard American Diet. Uh, now whole food plant-based, uh, do I dump the old and figure out uh, a way to convert recipes? Um, wow, Nancy, you know, that's a, uh, it's kind of a fun question, but it's also just a very personal one. I think that, um, you know, on one hand, a person could easily uh, just, you know, donate all those old cookbooks to your local library or their, their fundraising arm. Uh, and then, um, you know, maybe uh, go out and, and uh, buy one or two plant-based cookbooks that you enjoy or start out by borrowing some from the library to discover uh, what it is that you might add to your own library at home, okay? Um, but uh, if you feel like tinkering and doing a lot of experimenting, uh, then hang on to them and uh, try to convert some of those uh, old favorites that you have, you know, into plant-based um uh, recipes, keeping in mind, as I mentioned earlier in today's program, that when we make any changes to a recipe, we should reasonably expect the finished product to be different. Uh, and uh, so that, that's going to be color, it's going to be smell, it's going to be texture, you know, it's going to be, um, uh, you know, all these aspects of food, okay, that uh, had the potential to change. Um, but uh, take it either way, you know. Um, I think either way could be uh, uh, quite fulfilling. All right, thank you. Uh, and Karen says, how do you pronounce the R-O-U-X-B-E word? Um, it's pronounced Ruby, uh, as if it were spelled R-U-B-Y. Okay, Ruby. Thank you. And uh, Nancy uh, asks, as a chef, are you in the kitchen creating new dishes? Uh, the home cook uh, more often returns to what was successful, uh, maybe returning to serve what was appreciated by family members. How do chefs document and store so many recipes? Uh, storage ideas for the home cook? Um, so uh, as a chef, are you in the kitchen creating new recipes? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when I, when I cook, I'm uh, usually cooking impromptu, just based upon... Uh, what's uh, in the inventory and what I feel like um, or what I have been uh, inspired by. Um, and inspiration often comes from cookbooks, uh, sometimes those old sad cookbooks, sometimes the new plant-based ones. And, um, and so what I cook is often something new every day. Um, uh, and and I, don't, I don't necessarily, in fact, I don't usually keep notes um, so I don't, uh, you know, have a bunch of recipes that, I, that I'm cataloging or storing and referring to, okay? Uh, it's just cooking uh, as I go. And it's going to be, uh, you know, what's in season. It's going to be what's on sale at the store. It's going to be 
what I pull out of our you know, community garden plot down the street um, or something else. Uh, what maybe what uh, you know a friend or neighbor shared with with us. Um, and so things do change, um, but I don't take notes. Uh, um, and uh, you know, you bet. Uh, whether you're you're in a in a home setting or in a professional setting, you are going to return to making things that are popular because there, people are going to like them and they're going to uh, pay you in a restaurant or they're going to uh, you know otherwise enjoy your meals at home. Um, so you know, often we're going to find a preparation or a recipe that we like, and then we will make variations of that, right? By changing an ingredient here, an ingredient there, maybe some of the herbs and spices will change in order to take the flavor profile into one uh, region or a different region around the world. Uh, and, and so in that way, you know, we are creating uh, a new dish, but on a common platform or a common theme uh, and you can, you know, uh, have a half a dozen different recipes, but then create dozens and dozens um, of different dishes from that. Okay. And so in this sense, what we're doing, Nancy, is we're taking a recipe as a starting point, right, as a point of inspiration. Uh, and then we're understanding the cooking methods and the ancillary techniques that are at the basis uh, of that recipe. And then... We're just looking at that uh, foundation of, of uh, methods and techniques, and we're creating all these other uh, variations from that foundation, okay? And, and that is the way of cooking, and that is what we emphasize here at Ruby, okay? And I want to, you know, mention that, you know, we do have a lot of recipes in our library, in all of our courses, um, uh, have plenty of practice recipes that are included, but they're only practice recipes, okay? They're only uh, there uh, to sort of guide you down this path of practicing your methods, cooking methods and techniques uh, with the uh, idea that one of these days uh, you will finally take off, uh, you know, and, and fly on your own and uh, not have to refer to uh, recipes, uh, at least for the most most part, okay? Uh, when it comes to perhaps baking, right, where formulas are used, uh, sure, uh, it, it's important to stick to those formulas, and so we might refer to those uh, on a regular basis. But otherwise, when it comes to cooking, uh, you're on your own, and uh, you're going to enjoy the freedom uh, that comes with learning how to cook. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Hello, Bettina. Uh, do you recommend cooking with an air fryer? Do you have a specific one you could recommend for two people? Uh, too many choices and options online can make decisions a bit difficult. Uh -huh. um, you know, um, I have used an uh, air fryer a number of times. Um, I have checked it out from my uh, local library. And um, uh, do I recommend it? Uh, I think it's quite fine. Um, if there is a compelling reason why you want, um, you know, a, a, a stovetop or I'm sorry, a countertop appliance, um, then, then go for it. Um, but otherwise, if you've got other equipment that does that, you know, like a, a broiler or an oven or a toaster oven or something like that, um, then that's quite fine to use as well. You know, as, as I mentioned, it's just a matter of getting used to uh, what it is that you have, 
uh, developing the skills and the food handling knowledge around what you have, uh, unless there's a compelling reason to, to shift to some different technology, okay? Uh, as for brands um, uh, and specific models, no, uh, I don't have any suggestions, but what I do suggest uh, is that for any sort of an equipment or tool purchase that you go online and look for reviews uh, from two sources, uh, consumers, right, the, the end user consumer uh, and professionals uh, to get their opinion on whatever. Uh, and then read through those, um, uh, the, the commentary in order to figure out what features, pluses and minuses, are going to be most meaningful to you, okay? Don't necessarily uh, just grab a, a five-star rating and run with it. In fact, I avoid the five-star ratings, and I drill down to the one, two, and three-star ratings because that's where the more interesting commentary lies. I want to know what the issues are with this air fryer. Um, in case those same issues are going to be meaningful to me as the cook. Um, on the other hand, if the air fryer is getting five-star ratings and everything goes well, then, uh, then it's probably going to go well for me too. Okay, so take that approach when you read reviews and um, you know, critically choose what sort of equipment, you know, appliance or tool that you might introduce to your kitchen. Thank you. All right, and uh, we have Jane who asks, I recently purchased ingredients for a bean salad and no-bake brownie that I made for distributing food samples. I struggle converting quantities. I have purchased uh, both too much and not enough. Do you recommend a tool to help me with this? So uh, there are online calculators, and that's going to be um, probably the, the quickest and easiest uh, thing to do. Um, and and uh, you can do this, um, I think, on a recipe basis, and uh, you know, some sort of a suggestion will be uh, provided. Now, uh, you know, on one hand, uh, probably these uh, online calculators uh, are going to do a, a simple calculation. For example, if you want uh, to increase it by 5x, uh, they're going to multiply the quantity by 5. You know, this, this software you know, is going to do that. Uh, that's that's uh, a starting point, but often simplistic because um, when it comes to um, uh, very pungent ingredients, spices come to mind, uh, we can do that for small changes, like going from uh, you know, a given recipe to maybe a, a two-time or maybe a three-time increase, a 3x increase. But when we start to really ramp it up to like five or ten times, um, spice is often the, – the intensity starts to increase exponentially, and then things get out of balance. And so there's a point – uh, when we start to uh, need to do recipe testing ourselves uh, in order to adjust some of those most pungent uh, ingredients. Okay, and salt, you know, would be an example of that as well. Um, so, uh, uh, try, you know, keep those things in mind. You know, try an online calculator, which can work for all the basics, okay? Uh, you know, beans and grains and carrots and onions, for example. Um, but you know, know that you'll need to do some customization on some of these um, 
pungent, in particular pungent ingredients. Uh, and then part of it also depends on the service size, right? The individual service size. Um, the original, you know, recipe might call for a, a, an eight-ounce service size, but if you only want to serve uh, four-ounce service size, uh, once you ramp it up, then you have to make that addition, just an additional uh, adjustment, okay, in your calculation, okay. And uh, you know, if if hopefully that's helpful. Um, if you have additional questions, please reach out to us uh, at um, support at ruby.com. Thank you. And uh, hey, look at this. Another question from Nancy, who says, is there a useful book as a reference for substitutions uh, in sad recipes that you recommend? Um, you know, uh, I don't have a, a title off the top of my head. Uh, now, when it comes to um, baking, uh, there are a number of references that I've seen online. So you might just do a search and uh, check out some of those uh, because, uh, again, the function uh, of the ingredient uh, becomes more critical uh, in the baking context. And keep in mind, you know, very often that when we remove an item like eggs, which are very magical uh, because they uh, fulfill a number of different functions in a single ingredient in a plant-based kitchen, we're talking about introducing multiple ingredients to replace that one item. And so um, take a look at some of the information that's out there in order to understand uh, that process. Um, when it comes to uh, the savory kitchen and, um, you know, removing um, an animal-based fat or, an, uh, you know, dairy or something, it's often very simple because there are um, equivalents uh, in the plant-based world. Okay. Now they will taste different. Uh, they might look different. Um, so you'll need to make some adjustments along the way, but that's usually an easier uh, adjustment to make. All right. Thank you. And then uh, the last one from Leanne today, uh, the question reads, I recently made the, the Dijon potato recipe uh, as practice. Uh, however, my family did not like the Dijon vinaigrette as they are not fans of vinegar. Uh, what could I use to replace the rice vinegar? Um, so the, the vinegar uh, is added, um, you know, as a souring agent. There's some flavor attached to it as well, but primarily as a souring agent um, to stand up against the other um, heavier ingredients in uh, the final preparation, meaning the, uh, the potatoes in this case. So um, you know, think about other souring agents that your family does like. And, you, you know, you suggest um, uh, lemon juice, uh, which is uh, an excellent choice. Uh, you might even consider cutting back on the vinegar if that's an option, uh, you know, with your family. Um, but, but other citrus juices, you know, can be there, it could, uh, you know, lime juice. So you might consider mixing orange juice and lemon juice in order to find something that's got a little bit less acidity, a little bit more sweetness. Um, and, uh, you're bound to find something in there. Okay. That would be satisfying. Uh, you can even mix vinegar and a citrus juice. Okay. So all of these are possibilities, um, as, uh, you kind of navigate your way through, uh, the cooking experience, uh, and at the same time, you know, deepen, uh, your knowledge and broaden your skill set. All right. Thank you. And, um, uh, this brings us to the end of our program today. I want to thank you all for joining me. Uh, I hope you uh, found some insights uh, in our discussions today 
uh, amongst uh, the, the excellent questions uh, that were asked. And uh, just a, a friendly reminder, if you have follow-up questions, please reach out to us at support at ruby.com. And uh, until we meet again, happy cooking to each one of you. Thank you.